what you go into your office or your job thinking comes out through every cell in your body without you even realizing or pre-planning it will just emanate from you so I'm really happy to introduce Sherry McGregor today, a very talented lady who I am very lucky enough to know and spend a fair bit of time with. She looks after me from a healthcare perspective. I visit her practice regularly and she also uses her skills and talents as a mentor on our learning programs and our mental support system that we have here at Inio Life. She's been a facilitator, practitioner and a specialist on our life programs over the years. So I've invited her here today to talk to us all about um, how we approach our self-care, our health care and our wellness and um, I've got some headlines that I want to cover off and the conversation could go anywhere. But before I do any of that, I'd love it if she could introduce herself and say a few words. Hi Lou, good morning, lovely to speak to you. So I'm Sherry and what people sort of really sort of initially know me for is osteopathy. Um, that is why people generally speaking come to see me. People tend to have a reasonable understanding of what osteopathy is, which is basically treating the muscles, the ligaments, the tendons, the joints, because you have pain. But over the years in which I've been doing osteopathy um, and the way in which I was trained initially, I trained to be a naturopath as well as an osteopath. And naturopathy gives you a much, much broader perspective of the person so that when you are looking at somebody and trying to help them, you are looking at every aspect of their life. Because really, in this day and age, it's never ever one thing that people come to see you with. Because I've done this for quite a while, um, you uh, and I am really interested in people, I think, and communication and helping people. I've added a lot of other tools to my toolkit so I've also studied cranial osteopathy, which is a wonderful technique to work with babies and children. And I've got some, oh, I just love, it's a very magic time when you're working with a baby with cranial. Um, for, for the mum, dad, as well as myself, and of course the baby. Um, I do acupuncture. Uh, so therefore, uh, that brings in a whole wealth of um, philosophy and ideas that you can bring into um, my treatments uh, based on eight principles and five elements. Um, I also do applied kinesiology. I mean, you could be one of these people just trained in the one thing, but applied kinesiology is another aspect uh, in which you have a, um, a diagnosis and a, and a treatment protocol with which you can investigate and therefore treat somebody and help them from wherever they happen to be. So the toolkit's quite big. Yeah. Um, and when you come to see me, you will, uh, I tend to uh, use any and in fact all of those tools in order to get the best that I can get uh, to help you on your journey basically. Yeah. yeah, and I think um, this. How did I? How did I meet you? There's a little story there because I think um, I was in one of my most one of the most challenging mindsets that I 
have been in um, in my life. I was pregnant with um, a very early complicated pregnancy. Um, things were presented to me that I wasn't banking on or even contemplating. So there was some shock involved. And it was a very close friend, a friend of mine, a friend of yours that turned around and said, right, here's a number. You need to speak to this person because they are going to give you some of the best health advice um, and they're going to be able to stay with you on this journey from this point now right the way through until that baby is born and beyond in order to um, give you this this package of bespoke care that you need now that sounds like um, a seriously luxury position um, to find yourself in and, and in a way it is and um I just thought, do you know what? I'm so desperate. It was, it was kind of, you know, there were dark hours and days of, of time. And mm. I just thought I have absolutely nothing to lose here because mm. I feel like I've already lost it all. So let's, let's make some changes. Let's bite the bullet and let's go and visit this individual and let's see where the journey takes me. So I came to see you and I've I've never not seen you since. And this pandemic has gotten <laughs> in the way of me seeing you. Um, so that's been a little bit frustrating lately. But there is a story there, which um, I am so glad that the call it the universe or fate delivered me this this fork in the road where I could go do you know what? I could just go and explore a different approach here to looking after myself and looking after my family. And, and in doing that, seven years ago, I, I've not, that journey has not stopped. It is amazing. It's got twists and turns and I come to you and we sort them out together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I really want people to know a little bit more about that because it is a fascinating world of discovery. Mm-hmm. very passionate about it um so but less about me I'm interested I've got some questions that I think the listeners are gonna be really keen to um absorb so the first one the first one is about your your career and the things that you've noticed during that lengthy career um so I'll pose the question and you take it wherever you want it to go okay so, so when people come to your practice today, you know, throughout any given week, what are you seeing these days that is that is much more prevalent than uh, in and that's in adults, children, the middle ages and and the elderly. And I know you even get the old dog in that practice. <laughs> and a horse. <laughs> and a horse. What yeah. are you seeing? What are you seeing nowadays that you weren't seeing when you perhaps first started out or maybe 10 years ago? Well, prior to doing osteopathy, I trained as a shiatsu practitioner, which is a Japanese form of acupressure. So it was working on the meridians of the body uh, via pressure to uh, increase well-being and health. And that was my doorway into osteopathy because I realized that I really loved to work with people physically. And what I noticed at that time, because this was back in, oh, dare I tell you, back in the 80s, um, th- there wasn't 
all this access to all this complementary stuff that we can Google and there all the self-help books. There was absolutely none of this. Um, it, there was a very tiny slither of it, but nothing to the wealth that we have now. So I went on to do osteopathy because I felt that if I was going to really help people, I had to know what the heck I was talking about because, um, you know, people can come with you with all sorts of conditions or the possibility of various conditions and diseases. And you've really got to have your knowledge bank right up there in order to uh, seriously take this on board and, and absolutely be 100% certain as you go forward in terms of my confidence, which is what I did. So I started my practice in London in 1990. And uh, I don't know if anyone remembers that far ago, long ago, but that was actually in the middle of the big recession in the 90s. And it was a really, really stressful time to be employed and in the corporate world at that time. And I lived in a flat on the sixth floor and I could look out my window prior to the 90s and I could count about 20 cranes because there was so much economic development and business development happening. In about 1990-1991, there was one crane. They all disappeared because it was so bad <laughs> and that recession was so strong. However, that's, that's the, the scene that I started my, um, my practice in. You know what? It never even occurred to me that I wouldn't be successful because of the econo economics of the country. I just went, got up, went and did it, and, you know, in a very short space of time, I had lots of customers, which was fantastic for me because I was so enthusiastic and so motivated to actually get out there and help people. Um, you know, I did all, all sorts of things. But what was quite interesting at that time, people were coming in to see me and they would say the way that they were actually losing their jobs is that they would go to lunch. And when they went to log back into their computer after lunch, they couldn't log in. And that was their company's way of telling them they'd lost their job. So it was quite a, a difficult time, sort of time to be in atmosphere. Anyway, within about two to three years, we moved out of London. We moved to uh, the north of the country, to Cumbria. It was like walking into a beautiful beach, beautiful sunshine, not saying that the weather's like that all the time in Cumbria, but in terms of how people were in London, they were absolutely stressed because of the economic climate, etc. Mm. But they were really, really stressed. And I and whatever you were doing, it always took longer for someone to actually get better because of that stress. When we went to Cumbria, I was treating farmers and all sorts of people, and all they were interested in was getting their back better and getting back in the field to look after their cows. You know, so it was a completely different ball game. And in fact, it was like fresh air because they were seriously interested in just getting back to work and getting on with their lives. Whereas the people in London, oh God, they, they were a different kettle of fish. However, I have moved around the country and even around the world during these 30 years. Um, what I'm now noticing, if I take from 1990 up to the current day, A, the amount of stress that people experience mm -hmm. is phenomenal as compared, <clears throat> excuse me, to 1990, even though 1990 was highly stressful. It's gone up, you know, quintessential times. It's huge. And the other thing that I have really noticed is that people's conditions have become so much more complex. 
it's not just the matter of a bad back or a sore knee. It'll be the bad back with the irritable bowel, with the asthma, with the, with the mental health, with the anxiety, with the stress, with the panic attacks. And people seem to have become symptomatic in so many different areas of their life. It's rare now that I'll have a person come in and say, you know what, I've got a bad back, I fell over, I had a car crash, and they want sorting and on, and on they go. That, that is rare. Mm. Huh, I quite like it because that's quite easy. Everyone I see now is a huge complex case. I find that fascinating because technically on paper, even le- legislation um, keeps us safer than we've ever been before. So cars are safer. Uh, Footwear is safer. There's more PPE than you can shake a stick at. Yeah. So on paper, we're safer than we've ever been. But actually, we've got more symptoms and ailments than we've ever had. Yeah. And it's almost if there's more guidelines or, should I say, rules. But of course, as soon as you bring someone's awareness, like, don't fall over when you're crossing the road, what will you do? Think of falling over crossing the road. It almost like creates a scenario in that person's mindset. Yeah. which then they can latch onto if they're feeling um, emotionally vulnerable at that time, they will latch, they, you know, they can latch onto. Um, and I think because of the, also the access to, to so much uh, knowledge available on the internet, which I think is amazing and fantastic, but for probably about 90%, which is quite a high figure of the population, that becomes a problem in itself um, because it, it gives people the opportunity to delve into certain areas Mm. to start associating and communicating with people who have specific problems which then (laughs) back up what you're feeling and and cement you know more uh, strongly what you're feeling so that it's it's a difficult scenario yeah I know that I, I'm kind of, um, I was going to ask you about this at the end, actually, um, but I'm glad we're there now because the internet in particular is um, is something that we all have at one finger touch away from us. It is part of our anatomy, it feels like at times. Um, and I know Steve, our MD, is absolutely obsessed with the inter- uh, the impact of the internet and social media, in particular on young people, that's probably driven by the fact that we've got young kids and they're going to move into that teenage phase at some point and will our awareness have to change as parents, etc. Um, but I wondered whether we could just stay on that subject for a minute and the, the social media, the power of you know media in general and how you see that affecting all those different age groups. I mean, I work with a lot of uh, children and I've done something called sunflower training, which is a specific set of skills that you can use to actually help specifically young people through this difficult phase. And I am working with practitioners who did it longer than what I have done. And they have said to me in that same question that what they see now in terms of what young people are coming into their clinics with is so much more complicated. And you can almost say 100% with certainty that the internet and the access to the internet and the computer is an integral part of the problem. I mean, I have a book here. If I can just 
lean it over to it. I don't think this is a good idea. Well, it's on, oh yeah. And it's called How to Reset Your Child's Brain. And that's because of overstimulation from the internet. So let's just look at the internet. Apart from all the knowledge that you can glean, or the games that you play, or the social media to get onto, if you just look at the computer, I'm looking at this computer and I'm using my eyes to do so. My eyes are basically a ball of fluid and the way in which ele electromagnetic frequencies transmit, they transmit better through liquid than through solid. So you have a young person and they're looking at their screen for hours at a time. The electromagnetic frequency that that device emits goes through your eyeball. What's behind your eyeball? Your brain. And what's unique about a child is that brain is still developing. So we actually don't know exactly what's happening to that brain and how that development of that brain is changing on a day-to-day -day basis because you can't take that same child and not expose them to the internet or to electromagnetic radiation um, and then compare the two. I mean, this has become such an integral part of our society and you say, yes, we're one button away I think we're usually three, you know, we've all got three devices. I have an iPad, here's a laptop, and you've got a phone. Where do young girls have their phone all the time? In that back pocket. Yeah. Think of the electromagnetic radiation coming off that, going straight into their pelvis. What's right in that pelvis? Reproductive organs. And it will be influencing those um, ovaries and the ova. And you have to remember that the eggs that are in that, that girl's body were developed when she was pregnant with her mum and they were there when the mum was in the grandmother's uterus. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so there's two or three generations of, of that formation <laughs> in existence yeah. and then all of a sudden this being um, influenced by the electromagnetic fields in all of our devices that are surrounding us. Yeah. So potentially, some. What does um, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what an EMF is or an electromagnetic field? Just in in layman's terms, what what are they and what do they do to us? Well, basically, um, you have this whole frequency of electromagnetic radiation, and you go from gamma waves, which you I'm sure all will have heard of. And they're the ones that will basically kill you. So from nuclear disasters, you get gamma waves. That's it. <laughs> you have permanent uh, change to your DNA, your, your genetic system in your cells, and you die. And then you come down to x-rays, which have a certain amount of danger to them, and you want to limit exposure, which is why people shouldn't have more than so many x-rays a year, et cetera, et cetera. And as you move through this frequency the way that which actually gets created changes. So it's much higher and stronger frequency but the gamma. But right down at the other end, we've got radio waves, for example. So every electrical device gives off an electric frequency that can be measured uh, to see how strong it is. And when you start to look at these um, um, gadgets, sort of iPads, laptops, uh, you can use this uh, a gadget to actually determine how what frequency is, is given off. So you will all be familiar with 3G, 4G, now on to 5G. 
And there is a lot of research going on and they say, yeah, it's not um, harmful. But what they're looking at, yes, it's not giving us a brain tumour. Mm-hmm. Well, hold on. <laughs> you don't want a brain tumour, but there's an awful lot of ailments you can have before you end up with a brain tumour. Mm. If you think about, say, for example, the plumbing system in your house, if you have a massive leak, great. You get your plumber in, they can find the source, they fix it, and your plumbing continues. But what's worse, having a massive leak or having a little tiny leak that drip feeds away over a long period of time and it takes years for it to manifest? Well, that's where we are with the EMFs because although the mobile phone has a small EMF, because it's with us almost 24-7, and then you've got the, the Wi-Fi, the Bluetooth, um, the iPads, the, the laptops, and you are being constantly bombarded by this electromagnetic radiation, and it's just drip-feeding into your system. So you never actually have any time without it now. I can't imagine that anywhere, <laughs> unless you live in a cave, because then you get protection, yeah. would not be subjected to EMFs. So we are still at that point where we're seeing what, when you drip feed EMFs, how does that affect different people, ethnicities, different people with comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're still on out, out, I feel. Yeah. And that's just the uh, electro side of things, isn't it? It's also, there's also the, the tone and the content that's, available so we were talking about teenagers there for a minute so that um the heavy influence of um the social media or the beginnings of the or or where that starts to creep into their their world and how Mm. important it becomes Mm. to them yes you know early on and and some you know some kids you know age nine are on social media and I know that because I've got a nine-year-old fortunately she's not on social media so that's great but um and, and I know from that age they, they their exposure is rapidly increasing and then before you know it you've got a 12 13 year old who it's just the norm to have it as that stream of information that's and as parents we've got that <laughs> ongoing challenge of how do we create control around it um, and how much do we overthink it or not think it enough? There's mm-hmm. there's a scale there, isn't there? And actually, if you get a little bit busy one week, you might forget to tell them they're only allowed to have half an hour. Yes. Or you know where they've been on it two hours and you're like, oh my God, now you're beating yourself up as a parent. It's, everything creates a vicious circle, doesn't yeah. it? Well, as soon as you have that screen in front of you, supposing that they are on social media or they are playing a game, you are obviously mentally, emotionally engaging with whatever you're doing. So if you take, for example, probably about a year ago, two years ago, Fortnite was an absolutely huge thing, especially with junior school-aged children. And they were putting lots of pressure on their parents because all their friends were on Fortnite. And therefore, they could, they'd used it as a, as a sh- social sort of setting, so they were talking to each other, but also playing a game. In theory, that's quite nice however if you look at the action and the um uh hormonal production that was happening in their body as a result of playing Fortnite, it's a very um fight flight orientated type of game so you've got all these uh, neurotransmitters being released in the brain so there can be dopamine there will be gaba there will be oxytocin there'll be all these 
hormones flooding into your brain and making life very exciting. So, of course, mum comes along and says, oh, it's tea time. And, of course, the, the child doesn't want to stop. They want to carry on. They don't hear mum. So mum carries on saying, tea time, tea time. And eventually mum gets to the point where she's shouting. And then the kid turns around and shouts back because they are already in fight and flight. So adrenaline, noradrenaline is really going. And before, before long, you have a, a conflict situation. So where does that put the mum and the child? Um, and then, of course, they've now studied. It takes 48 hours for that child's brain to recover from one game a fortnight. So that means if the child has been on the Fortnite game or any of these games within a 48-hour period, their brain hasn't fully recovered. Mm. So they never get back to the, to the point where they feel normal. Mm-hmm. And as adults, children, because they're on this thing so much, their brain never gets back down to a level where it is actually relaxed because mm. there's always filtering information. And... I, I, in my um, work, have been really fascinated by the nervous system and the development of the nervous system. What triggers that development of the nervous system and how the brain evolves? It's such a um, uh, a motivating subject for me. I could speak on it all day, but you start to look at the thalamus. So the thalamus in the brain is actually, it's like a big King's Cross station. So all your sensory input from your hearing sight, taste, smell, touch, feel, all goes into the thalamus. And that then relays information to other parts of the brain. Um, And it literally can light up. So it's a hugely important part of the brain. Um, And with these screens, you have the EMFs going straight into that thalamus via the the, uh, eye sockets. <clears throat> and, and basically overstimulating, and the brain has a capacity to shut things down. So, for example, you get dressed in the morning and you're aware of putting your clothes on, but within about five minutes, you're no longer aware of your clothes being on your body because your, your nervous system has got used to the fact that your clothes are there. Um, but with computers and games and social media, your brain is no longer filtering in the same way that it would be doing as if it was acting normally. So there's this over-bombardment in the brain, this over-stimulation. And obviously that manifests in lots of different ways for different people. Yeah, and I, so I guess, so I'm the listener now and, um, you know, and I'm aware that we talk about these subjects a lot and I ask you all sorts of questions about it. So as the listener, what is there, what practical advice is there so if if someone's listening to this right now and they've got two or three kids mm-hmm. um that includes the husband or or the wife or whoever it is and they and they know that there's um, too much too much techno time yes what are some practical things that we can do to kind of retrain we've got to retrain our brains here haven't we that's the real you it, know, it's it's creating better habits okay because obviously with the computer, it becomes a habit. And they've, t- they've looked at mobile phones, for example, and I think it's something like every three seconds that there is a text or a message coming through, you know, on average on these mobile phones. If they actually take the mobile phone away from the teenager, for example, and then observe their behavior, they see that the nervous system's got such into the habit of being disturbed every three seconds, your body disturbs itself. Mm. 
So even if you just take the phone away physically, say, no, you're not on it for such amount of time, the nervous system has got so habitually orientated, it's going to interrupt yourself. So as a parent, this is, ha, I'm a parent, a really tricky one. I would, you know, you'll all know about ground rules, you know, setting limitations on how many, how much exposure time, but maybe think about actually offering your child an alternative. So rather than taking something away, which always makes you feel, oh, I want it more, you know, think of the classic diet type things. Connie, Kate, what do you think of Kate? Actually offer your family a different activity that they can actually physically go and do, mm. whether it be football or cycling or swimming or, you know, even decorating a room or doing something in the garden. Actually offer them a physical alternative. Um, because you have, you know, the, the computer is so stimulating. Life actually gets boring for some of these children. Yeah. Um, and if you think about it, your emotional fear center does not fully form until you're 29 years old. So you have a lot of years in which you want to go and do fight and flight type stuff, and white knuckle rides and all this. Um, so you have to create other opportunities so an example from my family when we were struggling with my daughter and she was 15 we went on a holiday to to France in the summer I mean we were very lucky we were able to do that but we did river rafting we did downhill mountain biking we did the via ferrata which was very very scary and we had all that adrenaline going with all these activities we did a week of that and um I mean, she did take a phone, but you know what? She was not on that phone because we happened to be in a chalet with a whole group of other people. Too so busy hanging on by your fingernails. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and we just had a ball for a week. And I'll tell you what, that was like a breath of fresh air to her because suddenly she realised there was all this other stuff and it literally reset her brain. Yeah, um, yeah. And I've um, just tapping in on that a little bit there. You're reminding me of something that we've been working at implementing here in this house so I've got six-year-old and a nine-year-old and we have got a uh, plastic box that um, the tech yeah. goes into so the phone and iPad not it's not a phone because they don't have phones but an iPod and an iPad hotel that's what mm. great so, um the kids get to put their stuff in there. But the, the, the secret for me with my coaching head on is by their own choice, they physically put that item into that box. Because if I do it and I take it, take it off them and I put it into that box, then that's me um, taking the power away from their choice. Absolutely. So uh, my tip would be, and and trust me, I've not got this completely weighed off yet. I'm work, it's a work in progress. But when I encourage them to do it, or when we encourage them to do it, and there's their own power behind it, their own empowerment and decision making, it works a lot better. Yeah. Now then you're giving the power, as you say, to the to your child, and they're working to their own rule that they have created, as yeah. opposed to being imposed. Yeah. It was something I heard literally yesterday. Prisoners in the UK um, are allowed because the rule is they can have 70 minutes of outside time per day. They're now discovering that children are having less 
than 70 minutes of outside time per day. So they are basically becoming prisoners in their houses with these devices. Yeah. The, the other thing that I've heard a lot, and I've discussed this loads with parents, is that the child will turn around and say, oh, well, you're always on your phone. Dad's always got his computer. And quite often it, it might be work-orientated, but they don't get that really, that it, it could be work. So my suggestion is to say, well, actually, I'm such and such an age. My brain is fully formed. Your brain is still developing. You want to ensure that you get the, all the potential in your brain manifest into your life. Yeah. And that that is, that is a, a clear distinction that a parent can tell a child that their brain is still developing. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to not overexpose um, such delicate tissue. If you took, uh, this is hypothetical, if you took a brain out of a, out of a person, you know, immediately after they died, you would, prob- you would probably say, oh, yeah, the brain is this shape. No, it's sort of like this. But actually, if you were to put it on a plate, you know what would happen? Within 10 minutes, it would take up the shape of the plate, of the vessel it was put into, because your brain is actually more liquid than solid. Mm. And the liquid that it's composed of is essential fatty acids, mainly it's fat. So go back to the EMFs, the electromagnetic radiation going through the eyes, And then you have this big watery bag, which is basically what it is. It's like a balloon um, full of water, but the the barrier around the balloon is very, very soft. That's going straight into there. Um, I love all this stuff about... I know, know it's great. And so I'm hoping that the the people that are listening to this are going to be thinking, uh, and I, I think it is a serious subject to think about, you know, um, how much is all of that technology influencing us and not just through what we read and what we see and whether somebody likes us or not not just that that's one that's a whole subject in itself isn't it but from a um, chemical biological um, perspective so let's let's talk. So let's just summarise then. So we've got these devices. We've got some really good um, insight now into how they're impacting us from a, a chemical and biological perspective. Um, but I think you know, for all ages, the little ones, the the, the mid age, the teenagers, the middle ages, and and our oldies, because we're using these devices, whether it's at home, and let's face it. We're all at home a little bit, mm-hmm. more. A bit more. Um, or or we are driving or in an office. The the impact of a device on our anatomy is what I want to touch well, on. It's interesting because I have had some some mums bring their teenage sons in terrible pain because of how they're sitting and their posture as a direct result of using these devices. And of course, there are certain schools now that are getting young teenagers to have laptops and all their study is done on laptops, et cetera. Um, So, yeah, it has a a physical impact. It will have a neurological impact because of the the EMFs going into the brain and exciting and creating chemical change in the brain. And then, of course, when you start to consider the content of what that's doing and and the, um, uh, the effect of the chemical change in the brain, you're then going to engage the emotions. Yeah. So when I look at people, uh, just a very simple 
uh, way to sort of approach uh, any situation is to, if you put your index fingers together and you put your thumbs together, so your thumbs are in a straight line, your index fingers are just touching at the tip, then you'll see a triangle. Now this is quite, a triangle is a really important shape. They use it in yoga a lot. Uh, you know, think of the pyramids. Well, I know they were pyramids as opposed to triangles, but it's based on a triangle. So if you think of the apexes of those three things, we have our chemical part from our body because of all the different chemical interactions that's going on uh, in our bodies. Then we have the physical structural part of the body. And in osteopathy, structure governs function. So if you have a, an ill-fitting door, for example, and you carry on using it, eventually the door is going to just squeak and fall off and then not work. And that's, exact, that's as simple as it is with your structure. So if you don't use your structure carefully, then it won't function okay. um, effectively. And then the third little sort of apex of that triangle is uh, the emotions. I feel it's a little bit like a three-legged stool in so much that you that is the sort of basis upon which humans are composed. But I feel we have a fourth element. So if you then put your middle fingers, uh, the tips of the middle fingers together, and just rotate your hand away from you slightly, you will create a pyramid shape. And so you have your emotional, your physical, and your uh, chemical at the base. And they all have to be working together, integrated, supporting each other, in order for you to develop spiritually. So therefore, we, the, the base supports the spiritual development. And our spiritual development, which doesn't have to be religious, is actually the journey that we take ourselves on in our lives. What is it we want to do in our lives? What do we want to achieve? What do we want to learn? Who do we want to meet? Where do we want to go? What do we want to see? And that is all about the senses again. What do you want to feel? What do you want to taste? What do you want to hear? That's straight back into that thalamus, which is what I talked about earlier. And that is an integral part of um, our beings, is, is our spiritual development. So if we look at the chemical, the emotional, and the structural elements, and we look at how we can actually support those three really important areas. Let's take structure, quite simple. Humans are dynamic beings. So you probably know what I'm going to say. You need to move. You need to get outside. You need to get into nature. You see, when I'm talking about top tips, I work very specifically on a one-to-one -one basis. So I tend to look at what's in front of me and give advice that is going to be so pertinent to that one person. So these top tips are very broad, okay? So you can take out of them what it is that, that, that you connect with. So humans are dynamic beings, so you've got to move. I know for a fact that with elderly people, that it tends to be that they move less and less and less. And our workforce is very much orientated towards sitting at computers again. So it's very static. So wherever possible, get up and move. But then ask yourself, what is it that I want, you know, what do I want to achieve by moving? Look at your morphology, look at your body type and say, like, I'm a petite sort of, yeah, fairly delicately balanced, I suppose, individual. I'm not a, 
a stocky person or I'm not really tall and really strong. So I wouldn't want to go and play American football. That would be the worst nightmare. You know, I wouldn't want to do strong boxing, kickboxing type stuff because my joints, I'd, I'd absolutely collapse within seconds. So therefore, I've looked at my morphology. I've, I've asked my question, what do I enjoy? How can I develop the potential that I have in me? So I just love movement. I love movement. I love dance. I love rhythm. I love um, uh, all things to do with yoga and Pilates and, and dance and contemporary dance. All those things absolutely love. In fact, I just love exploring movement. You know, I've done caving in the past because I wanted to explore what your body did when you were caving. I've done rock climbing. I've loved that um, because it's, it's all about body awareness and movement. And as soon as you increase your body awareness, you increase the proprioceptive nerves, which are the nerves that go from your joints and uh, arms, feet, etc., that drive and send information back to the brain. So the more information your brain has about where you are in time and space, the less likely you will injure yourself, the less likely you will cause pain, and the less likely you will create dysfunction within your physical structure. So look at your structure. See if you can analyze, am I more muscly? Am I tall and lanky? Or am I sort of somewhere in the middle? And then decide what type of movement sport would suit your morphology. And the other thing to add to that is do variety. Don't just do one sport. Do different things. Because obviously, if you want to improve fitness, you've got to think about stamina you've got to, and cardio. You've got to think about strength and you've got to think about flexibility. So again, another triad, if you like, of three things to, to work towards and choose something that actually identifies each of those uh, functions. If we um, move on to the uh, chemical side, and this is absolutely huge. Top tips here. Gosh, what, what should I leave out? Everything in your life produces a chemical reaction in you whether you're drinking water whether you're drinking pop whether you're sitting in front of a computer this now is creating a chemical change in my brain so when you're thinking of chemical and you want to support your chemistry within your body I mean I would say stay hydrated really important just you know just take one simple thing such as hydration I do a specific test on people when they come to see me to test how much influence the computer or the laptop or the iPad is having on that person's nervous system. And I can demonstrate to them in a very physical way what that is doing to their system, which most people are absolutely amazed when they see this. Then I look at how hydrated that person is. And most of us go around life not drinking enough fluid. Um, and it doesn't always have to be just water. Isotonic fluids are very important because if you drink just water, that water tends to go through your system but doesn't go into the system. So you actually want to make what you're drinking slightly isotonic. So um, having a small amount of salt, and there are all different salts. There's magnesium salts. There's, there's apart from sodium chloride, which is normal table salt, um, and some sort of sugar. Uh, will make that fluid isotonic. So it might be, you know, your slice of cucumber or your slice of apple or your slice of, 
orange or a mixture of those things, which make then the water that you're drinking isotonic, which then will make the water that you drink goes into the cells. Um, so hydration is very important. And there's a lot of talk now about diet, obviously. And um, if I'm giving dietary advice, it tends to be on a one-to-one -one basis. So these are sort of more general things. Uh, so look at what you're eating. Look at the food groups that you're eating. Have you got a balance between your proteins, your carbohydrates, and your fats? And have you got variety? I I've treated people, and all they will eat. Yorkshire I had one girl, and she was nine. She'd only eat Yorkshire puddings, Heinz tomato soup, it had to be, and chips. Well, guess what? She was not very healthy. She had asthma and all sorts of things, and that was her diet. You want to try and aim for 200 foods per year that you eat different foods. So I sat down in one of those, you know, all that extensive time that we had in lockdown, and I did a spreadsheet of how many foods I ate. And it was actually quite hard to get to 200 foods. And I believe that I eat a very varied diet. I don't exclude any specific food groups. So if you are excluding for specific food groups, that is going to be harder for you to attain that 200 foods because then you are getting a really broad range of nutrients. And of course, the other thing that goes along with that, make sure when you sit down and you, and you eat your plate of food, make it as colorful as you possibly can be. So that you've got your reds, because all these different colored foods have different phytonutrients, anthocyanins, um, uh, carotenes. There are hundreds of phytonutrients. So anything that has spice in it or has color, like the purpley, red, orange, yellow, all those colors add phytonutrients, which are essential to drive your chemical pathways to form enzymes that create uh, chemical pathways to happen. Uh, so hydration, variety, and color in your diet. And if we look at the emotional side, well, this gets really interesting because, um, whoa, it's such a big area. You know, you could spend a whole weekend, I'm sure you've been on weekend courses all about the emotions and how to deal with those. But if there was going to be some top tips every now and again, ask yourself these three questions. Because really, you see, getting a top tip, what I'd actually like to do is create curiosity in you. If I can create curiosity in you, I know that you will go forward and do something. And motivation for what you're doing is so important to have, to be motivated to what you do. So asking yourself these questions, becoming curious about yourself rather than judgmental, which we can all be and our little negative voice chats away, says, oh, you can't do that, you can't do that, etc., etc. You want to create curiosity. So ask yourself the first question, why are you doing this? So if I say to myself, why am I a therapist? I could talk forever, as you can probably imagine, why I do it. Because of what I feel, uh, the satisfaction I feel when I help somebody. And helping somebody is a great way to actually help yourself. God, I must have been needing a lot of help. <laughs> I've done it for a lot of years. But I absolutely get a huge thrill when I can see a change in someone. Now, I'm not the change. They are the change. I am the facilitator to help create that change. 
And that's very important. That's a, a very important um, standpoint that I take. I am not creating changes. I am creating the facilitation for the change to happen because then the person has to pick up their own life and then go forward. So ask yourself, why are you doing what you're doing? And if your, your reply starts with, oh, then you know you're not doing the right thing. How can you change that? The second area that's really important for emotional uh, stability and balance is to develop some really lovely relationships with the people around you or you have animals in your life. So important to have animals in your life. Um, and if you haven't got some meaningful relationships, go and spend some time with people that inspire you. And that's what I love, I have to say, about Reboot. Every single mentor and facilitator and person that I've ever met in Reboot has inspired me in some way. And I get that sort of fuzzy feeling inside because I just feel so then inspired myself and so motivated. Go and spend some time with some motivating people and see what happens. And then the third thing is, what are you aiming for? Which brings me back to my triad and the spirituality bit. Because this spirit, spirituality bit of the pyramid is where are you going in life? What's your aim? What's your goal? Now, over my life, you sort of come to realize it's not actually where you're going. It's the journey that you're taking to get there. You might never get to where you'd actually hope to get to. But that's because if you ask those questions regularly, it'll change as you go along. But actually make sure that you aim towards something. Even if you think you're aiming towards a shut door and every time you shut a door in your life, and this happened to me multiple times, something else opens. And the other thing, make sure you laugh every day. <laughs> a really quick story. This guy that I did read, he got diagnosed with a condition called ankylosing spondylitis which is a, a devastating genetic condition, which is degenerative. And it basically means that the anterior uh, longitudinal ligament of the spine, front of the spine and the back of the spine, the posterior longitudinal ligament, they get inflamed and they start to ossify, which basically means when you move your spine, if this is all bone and inside there is all bone, you can't do this. So your whole of your spine fuses. And guess what? There is no cure. Except for painkillers, da da da. Um, but there's no cure. So this guy, when he got this diagnosis, he booked himself into a hotel for six months and he rented every single comedy video he could possibly get his hands onto and spent six months laughing. <laughs> and when he came out, <laughs> yeah, he went back to his specialist and they could find no evidence of ankylosing spondylitis. He did have a blood test which is the HLA B27 blood test that you have. And if you had that, da, 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 you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they couldn't find any evidence of ankylosing spondylitis. So laugh every single day, as much as you can. So that's a great story about the power of being able to cure yourself sometimes, isn't it? Through, through attitude, um, yeah. mindset. Um, there is something that I, I really want to, um, to ask you about. And, um, it there's so many things we could we could carry <laughs> on talking we could be here for weeks oh, um, and it's exciting um and i i think 
for anyone listening to this, they'll be on a journey in listening. And my biggest source of learning at this moment in time, in this phase, is uh, through audio. So I'm always listening to podcasts because I find it easy when I'm perhaps going out for a walk or driving somewhere or, you know, doing the dishwasher or cleaning the kitchen, whatever it is, I can multitask a little bit and have that lovely drip feed of information. And sometimes I might listen to the same thing again because you get a different spin on it. We filter it through differently. That's your balance. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, you know, when you come in a classroom with us a lot, it's like, this is what we, we do to deepen and forward and, and broaden the learning. So we're always looking at doing that. Mm. So um, what I'm thinking here is, is so in the workplace, just for a minute, if we can flip there. Mm-hmm. So to what extent is um, well-being? So we're looking at well-being as that broad subject now and all of those touch points that you beautifully described and given us that lovely triangular um visual to to hang off of there so what to what extent is well-being critical to someone's employment success i say it's 150 percent because what you go into your office or your job thinking comes out through every cell in your body without you even realizing or pre-planning it will just emanate from you so if you go into your work environment and you're you have fear lack of confidence uh, low self-esteem conflict going on in your head that's what will come out humans have become great people to put on a bro face you know you might have had an argument with your husband at home then you have to go and see your next person or whatever and you have to be all nice and smiley and and oh yes I'm I'm completely neutral but actually if you were to film that person you would see so many things coming out that would indicate what's in your head and what you've just experienced yeah we leave truth don't we Sorry? We leak the truth. Absolutely. You know, good old Amy Cuddy. Yeah. She, you know, fake it till you can make it. Well, you can fake it to a degree. Yeah. And that is good, good advice. But actually, you have to live it. You have to feel it. You have to breathe it. So when you have a thought, you create electricity in your brain. When you have a feeling, you actually create magnetism. So if you have this lovely feeling inside of warm and fuzzy, like I get (laughs) when I'm with people with Reboot, that's what will come out. That's what you will draw towards you. But once you get the feeling, you will then get the action and it will come naturally. So well-being is so critical. Um, I mean, we're at very sort of interesting environment at the moment with, with what's happening in society and so everybody's well-being has definitely been tested yeah uh, for me th- this takes me in so in my thoughts right now I'm thinking so sometimes if we're feeling under the weather we will make that phone call to our GP we'll yeah. 
muscle our way through the lady on reception who asks us 50 questions that we don't really want to answer (laughs) and and finally we might get an appointment and that appointment is 10 minutes long and and you know if you're lucky to get in the practice these days then fine but now we might even be on a telephone call with a GP or a virtual person Mm. um so there are massive, so coming from the world of performance and coaching and in particular, all of that, strip it away. And you're talking about rapport. Yes. You got 10 minutes to build rapport with somebody through a screen or a phone. Yes. And actually that might be your darkest hour. That for me doesn't work. That, that I'm I struggle with that. Um, cause really if it's your darkest hour, you've usually got a list. Well, I have, and I'm saying things like, yeah, and I really want to talk to you about that, but next I'll wait till next time. And yeah. then you go away and you might feel a little bit better again for a bit. And then, and then, and then and you put it off. So I, I really struggle that our healthcare system, mm. this country's healthcare system can only give you a 10 minute chunk of their time. And how the heck can we build rapport? Yeah. Uh, why am I going down this road? Not because I want to talk about the NHS, because I do think they do an amazing job with the they resources do. that they've got. They're phenomenal. And, you know, given that they run on, on fresh air most of the time financially, they, they do a, an amazing job. Um, however, what I want to say is not everyone has got the luxury of spare income to, to book yeah appointment with somebody like yourself sometimes we haven't even got the spare hour let forget the income we've not got the spare time yeah. or we put our kids first and not ourselves yes. um and you know my my top tip would be even if you could do it once a year you'll learn something about yourself one hour a year one hour every six months yeah. that you could make that investment um, that's why I said that I am not the change. I am the yeah, facilitator. Because exactly. if I can point you in the right direction to actually change how the chemistry is working in the brain, it will then create curiosity in you, which will then create you. Go and find what works for you. Because yeah. ultimately, you live inside yourself. Yeah. And in a sense, I'm an educator. Because yeah. prior to doing osteopathy, I was a teacher. And I love teaching. I just, you know, and and trying to inspire people. Um, but if you can then become your own educator, you become your own healer. Yeah. And there is so much available on the internet that's totally free. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you've been so generous with your sharing your philosophy and your time and your insights. And the biggest takeaway that I get when I come along and visit you is, I'm a bit of a why person, so I don't always um, necessarily. I've got a, I've got some sciatica. Can you have a little look at that and sort out what's going on there? But I love understanding and learning more about the. So why might this be happening? Mm. Why is there a misalignment? Why is there a nerve trapping? And and going back to that root cause. So I think I would like to sum up today with with a you know, lay down the gauntlet for people and go, go and explore your root cause and use whoever's around you to, to go and do that. And if that's getting onto Slack and dropping you a, um, a private message or sending an email to one of us or picking up the phone, 
then yep. go and explore your root cause. And it might not be anything to do with your body. It might just be something to do with the way you think. Um, it might be the root cause connected to getting the next best job on the planet. Who knows? I mean, going back to me working with these children, all these children that come to me with, you know, anxiety, stress, low performance at school, uh, you know, ADHD and autism, if you look at their structure, <laughs> 100% of them, their structure is out of balance. How can you hope to have great thoughts in your head if your whole structure is out of balance? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to see an osteopath, but then you can go and do one of those body awareness type um, uh, sports that I was talking about earlier, because once you start to get awareness in your body physically, you will suddenly start to become aware mentally of yeah. and start to ask yourself questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this has been an amazing, insightful conversation. You are such a wealth of experience and knowledge. And I, let's, let's just say right now, we're going to have another one of these at some point <laughs> in the future <laughs> where I've got a better internet connection <laughs> and you don't sound like a Dalek. Um, and I, I've taken up enough of your time on a Saturday. Oh. So I'm going to say thank you. You're a superstar. Oh, thank you, Lou. It's always oh. a pleasure to talk to you. I'll be round next week with my sciatica. <laughs> and I'll be asking you those questions. <laughs> yeah, I'm look, look out. <laughs> Merry Christmas. All the best to you and Merry Christmas. And let's hope 2021 is going to be an amazing year for everybody. So join me tomorrow, learners and listeners, when we get a chance to talk to... Richard Greaves and Neil Didhams and they talk to us about that all-important chemistry in the mentor and mentee relationship. We go from not being good enough or something not being good enough right the way through to making a change to lives and how we can secure ourselves jobs that really make a difference to our own life, our own self-esteem and the many lives of others. So tune in, press play and I'll meet you there.